0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. It is a great honor to welcome John Taylor Gatto to our show today. He is the author of the most groundbreaking books about education in the world, The Underground History of American Education, which took the world by storm, dumbing us down the hidden curriculum of compulsory schooling. And I have just completed... His new book, Weapons of Mass Instruction, A School Teacher's Journey Through the Dark World of Compulsory Schooling. He is beloved by so many respectable, wise people. Thomas More, who wrote Care of the Soul. Tom Peters, who wrote In Search of Excellence. So many wonderful people in New York public schools. He served for 30 years as a teacher and was a New York City Teacher of the Year. He is a sought-after speaker who speaks around North America. He's for open-sourcing schooling and education. His paradigm and his understanding comes from a deep level of what it means to learn, to fall in love with learning, and what education is really about. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome John Taylor Gatto to It's Rainmaking Time. Good afternoon.
1: Great to be with you, Kim.
0: I have to tell you when I first began reading your most recent book, Weapons of Mass Instruction, I did not know that I had a bias. As open as I am, I had a bias that was revealed through reading this, that education vis-a-vis compulsory schooling was mandatory and helpful and that college degrees really helped people. Now, I want to tell you my bias because (laughs) the learning that took place after this book was profound. I know that many incredible people from all over the world have not been schooled in high school nor college and created new industries, new inventions, new discoveries, new businesses that transformed the world. But I fell under the hypnosis that it was a better thing to be degreed than not degreed even though i know for a fact that it has nothing to do with success i believed subconsciously through programming that if you don't have a degree life becomes harder for you to get work and to create work etc so it was really illuminating for me to realize that as open as i thought i was that i had some programming that was residual from my own education from my own family and from ancestral handing down of the last hundred years. Very interesting.
1: (laughs) Uh, Well, that's been carefully conditioned into all of us for slightly over a hundred years. But the next time you have Bill Gates on your show or Steve Jobs or Michael Dell, ask them, say, fellas, honestly, what how would your life have been improved if you had gone through college and taken a degree? Or the next time you have Ted Turner, who created the only international television channel, CNN, say, Ted, how would you have been better off if you had had four years of college? Uh, The fellow who created Whole Foods Market... Oh yeah, and Kinkos and that... Kinkos, yes, and they're from right out your way. The, the Human Genome Project, in case people think it only works for hustlers in business, has two founders. One of whom was home educated on a remote sheep ranch in Western Virginia, following no curriculum whatsoever, except what he could convince his three brothers, or they could convince their three brothers to study, and for as long as all four agreed. That was the curriculum of half of the Human Genome Project. It was not science-heavy. In fact, it looks to me as if it were science light. And the other half is a California kid from San Diego, who cut school about one day out of every two to go surfboarding, and only graduated because the teachers hated him so much that they raised his F average to a D minus to get rid of the bum. He then went (laughs) on to be a private soldier in Vietnam, I mean the bottom of the heap, those two are the Human Genome Project, the foremost scientific project by a country mile in the world today. We've swallowed hook, line, and sinker a kind of secular religion. Uh, and let me give the best take on it. It was well-meaning, it was put together by a lot of people, who presumed that most human beings were decidedly inferior, and so the word education had no meaning at all. They had to be schooled not to get in the hair of the best stuff. And some of the people who did that, Kim, would just cause your jaw to open. One of the biggest was Charles Darwin. Uh, I'm not referring at all to his theory of evolution, but in his second big book, Descent of Man, he said that most of the human race, the closest I can figure, he's talking about 90%, are biologically inferior, so much so that it's hopeless to try to raise them up. And if they intermarry and crossbreed with the good stuff, evolution's going to march backwards. Now you don't have to take John Gatto's word for this. In every public and school library in California, you will certainly in every public library you will find. Descent of Man by Charles Darwin, 1871, but kept continuously in print. And he'll just tell you how inferior everybody is. Just as John Calvin did religiously or a bunch of German uh, psychologists in the 19th century did, I'm clearing my throat scientifically, uh, or, or as the great Quote, liberal philosopher uh, Spinoza said in 1690 that almost all the human race is murderously irrational, and we have to have universal schooling that didn't, of course, exist at the time in order to fill their heads with nonsense so that they'll be ineffective. We'll divide them from one another through competition, he said. I mean, this is amazing stuff that's right under everybody's nose. The libraries are full of it. If the schools actually bothered to teach people how to read, you know, I think this would be much better known.
0: I'll have to tell you that I had to suspend my initial impression, knowing really not a lot about you. I did not read Dumbing Us Down or The Underground History of American Education. I began with Weapons of Mass Instruction. And at first, I had to get through the sentiment that imbues you as you're describing the school system and giving example after example of individuals in high places who've either never been to college, never graduated, and possibly never graduated high school. I thought it was interesting. Franklin Roosevelt, John Kerry, George Bush, Al Gore, Dick Cheney,
1: Lou Wasserman from MCA. I mean, you can
0: really go on, but it's shocking that so many of us have been hypnotized to assume and to take on and to have integrated the belief that if you don't have a college degree, you're in trouble throughout your life. It's like you're marred. Right. And yet the very opposite has happened. People have become more creative more enterprising, more responsible, more self-reliant, the opposite is actually true when you look at the evidence. But I think also so many of us are afraid to go another route. Like I remember as a young child when homeschooling was discussed, I remember my mom saying to me, I think it's better for socializing you to go to a regular school where you can interact and if you have problems with kids, you can work it out and you won't have that opportunity if you're homeschooled. So you'll develop social skills you wouldn't have otherwise. That was the thinking, or at least that was the brainwashing of the time, and it seemed to make sense on a certain level. Do you agree with that? Not at all, although
1: I'm not being cavalier in dismissing that. It, it, that's reiterated every day, you, you know, from kindergarten. So it, it would be a wonder if we didn't all automatically credit that. The truth is that you're confined with people your own age. You learn to uh, have contempt for people younger than yourself, and you learn to have a kind of are be intimidated by people older than yourself. You're also further segregated by some bogus reading score that that that's supposed to enhance your intellectual development that the the disconnection schooling makes, the divisions among us uh, or or an invention of the nations of North Germany. There wasn't a Germany until 1871. There were the Germanys. There were almost 200 of them. And they had followed this very rigid class-based pattern, just as Britain had, except I think the Germans were a little more uh, uh, exacting But I may be wrong there. In any case, the the Germans gave us the first schooling in the Western world that was systematic, that was required by law, or the police would come and get you. And out of northern Germany, which has no natural resources at all, and really is almost landlocked, What we got was great prosperity. It came from converting most of the population into, this is a German translation into English, human resources. So instead of being sovereign spirits with free will and living in the land of the free and the home of the brave, you're a human resource to be spent by your betters. And oddly enough, in a manufacturing or a militaristic uh, economy, of course that works, but it doesn't work for human beings. I mean, it works for the health of the state and whoever uh, is in possession of the state apparatus at the time. Well, uh, Germans were... Prussian Germans in particular, were imitated all over the world. From Japan, a delegation came, went back to Japan, and translated the Japanese, the Prussian Constitution into Japanese. That was 1868. From the United States came Horace Mann, and in every library in California, I mean in every library, you will find, ask the librarian, you want to read Horace Mann's seventh letter to the Boston School Committee, fresh back from Prussia, or at least he says so, fresh back from Prussia, he says we must have Prussian schooling here. And about eight years later, they got it in Massachusetts, spread instantly to New York and to Washington, D.C. And then what should really cause us to think, no other part of the United States for 15 years jumped aboard. And the key to unlocking that mystery of why they eventually did was Washington, D.C., was one of the three original signers to this. And they sent out the the money men with the bags and the bribes uh, and they laid those around. And yet, the last American state didn't fall in line until 1918. You know, 68 years after the first one did.
0: Which was the last American state that fell in line?
1: Well, Mississippi, but... Right before Mississippi, there were about five more that fell during the First World War when genuinely uh, boxcars of money were available to lay around. And, of course, you could employ the police power of the state much more effectively in wartime than you can in peacetime. So what we had was a coup of a sort. And the coup installed, not education, but Prussian schooling, uh, which which is, ba- is test-driven. It rigidly divides people from one another. It drives up the experience base that any kid needs to actually develop. Uh, the experience is reduced to low-level abstractions. Out of committee-selected textbooks, so you know we could take this. I don't mean you and I, but all of us. We could we could take this as a as a moral matter. We could take it as a historical matter, or we could take it as a pragmatic matter. That the huge advantage that open-source education gave the United States over any other part of the world, the huge advantage is worn out now. It's gone. Other people have copied American-slash-Prussian schooling, and they do it much better than we do. it. I'm thinking of China, of India, of Japan, of Malaysia. They do it much better than we do because they don't have any traditions of liberty or freedom or individuality. These are collective societies in their mythology, so they're already starting several laps ahead of us. And of course, they retained their manufacturing base because schooled kids uh, don't have much imagination, but they can be chained to a machine or an office and do things repetitively. They don't know how to do anything else, and they don't associate very well with one another because if you're in... If you're in 11A, you're not used to associating with the kids in 11B, 11C, 11D, 11E, uh, ad infinitum. So divide and conquer is a big, big part of American schooling and also schooling elsewhere. But it's not going to help us in a future in which jobs have rapidly dried up. I speak to business groups as well, and I can guarantee you nobody with any sense thinks that we will ever recover the position we had 20 years ago.
0: There were a lot of revelationary things I learned in the book. One is, you said that after World War II, the boom of the 50s, the biggest corporations are schools.
1: Oh my goodness, yes! They're they're first and foremost an employment project, and they absorb millions of people into the workforce, not just the ones you see behind desks and in offices. How about the guy who drives the truck that brings the chalk to school, the people who make the chalk, or all the rest? It's more than half of the profit of the publishing industry. And I would imagine uh, all these IT materials, that works the same way.
0: I think what's also interesting is that a lot of the knowledge that's transmitted in the school books is outdated. It
1: doesn't matter. School's function is to teach habits and attitudes. The factual content is utterly irrelevant as long as the attitudes and the habits are learned. You need, for example, and I'm not Quoting my own subconscious, but a big, big, big shot at Harvard for whom the honor lecture at Harvard in Education is named Alexander Ingalls. The name looks like Inglis, I-N-G-L-I-S. But anyway, Inglis said the first job is to make people obedient reflexively. Now, that's a crucial distinction between obedient and obedient reflexively. The only way you can test whether Kim Greenhouse is reflexively obedient is to give her stupid orders, right? Because sensible people follow sensible orders. So you have to make... Stupid things to test whether people jump when you click your fingers. Do you see what I'm driving at? Sure. here? This is a behavioral training laboratory experiment, and for it ran brilliantly from the point of view of management, not for human values. But it ran brilliantly, From about 1910 until uh, 1960, 65, what began to happen then is this immense imaginative advantage we had over the rest of the world dried up, and you can measure that by... Uh, a curve of, of the de- the declining curve of patents granted to Americans in 1939, we had get ready for this 92 percent of all patents granted on planet Earth. Wow! But but by <laughs> where are we now? <laughs> 2011, we have 22 percent, and the curve is steeply downward. So count on the fact if you check back 20 years from now it's going to be down in the 10 somewhere.
0: It's, it's profound. Why is it that so many of us associate success with schooling?
1: Well, w- once again we're conditioned from every corner of society even journalism that in theory at least has the Has the job, the task of telling truth to power simply picks up the bits and pieces uh, that pass to them, they don't often stitch them together in any new combinations. For example, you would be hard-pressed, if your life depended on it, to find any... Evidence, documentary evidence, that tests, standardized tests measure anything at all except your grade on the next standardized test. And how come we're blowing $50 billion a year and about 10% of the school year on them?
0: What's it what about? What does it
1: matter with you get a good grade on a standardized test? I don't know you from Adam, and I know that never in your life when you had a decision to make, did you ever ask the people that you were trying to decide whether to hire or work with what their standardized tests? No one does. No one does because on some sane component in our little compartment in the back, we know the information's worthless. It doesn't measure anything. There have been a hundred major studies over the 20th century, very expensive ones, trying to find out what exactly what credibility you could put in a standardized test prediction and the answer is zero. They can't find any. Some of these expensive examinations find a negative correlation.
0: So what are they doing? Why are they continuing to keep it as an integral part of education? Why? Why?
1: We're going to elect you instantly, overnight to the California legislature. And, and and you're a sensible woman. You know, you're not an ideologue. You know you have to go along to get along. And uh, it, when you, whenever you try to raise an argument against these, your colleagues say, really, Tim, could we save that for another time? Not because... They're evil conspirators because they're in the same boat you are. Whether they get reelected or not depends entirely on whether they look good. Not on whether they do good. Whether they look good in office and taking up issues like this doesn't make you look good because the only person with the money to make you look good good or bad are the testing companies and they immediately move to discredit you not necessarily on your stance on tests that you know we've we've constructed an apparatus sort of like a giant ocean liner that is asked to turn 180 degrees in the in the next mile. Well, it can't do that.
0: Who's pulling the strings behind the companies that are invested? It's a brilliant question.
1: And fortunately, the United States Congress twice in the 20th century asked itself that question. Once in 1915, those of you with a, a pen and paper and a good relationship with your librarian, the Walsh Commission in 1915 set out to answer that question, who is pulling the strings in schooling? Because there was an awful lot of uh, uh, concern about the changes that were taking place in American schooling. And then once again, in 1959, was the Reese Commission, R-E-E, CE, he was a congressman from Tennessee, and that one came very, very close to uncovering the whole truth, but as it was preparing its final document, a, a firestorm of the ugliest criticism burst out behind the scenes from people in every major institution to stop these maniacs from printing what they've learned. And so, because that pressure extended into the families of the commission, even though they were leading Americans, every one of them, they disbanded, and it was only through the courage of the council for the Reese Commission that we got a document published with their final notes before they wrote up. Both of these commissions, separated by uh, what was that, forty-five years, came to the same conclusion that American schooling is controlled from the project offices of about twelve major corporate foundations. Nineteen fifteen, nineteen fifty-nine same thing, and that international input was coming from an organization still in existence right near where I live in New York, the Council on Foreign Relations. Uh, They were pumping in uh, the international uh, input into our schooling, but essentially it was the Rockefeller Foundation, The Carnegie Foundation, the Astor Foundation, the Vanderbilt Foundation is just beginning to make a pattern. We are not talking about a conspiracy here. We're talking about people looking out for their own interests. You cannot have a mass production economy centered around giant corporations. Unless the public can be convinced to spend everything they earn and to shop you know <laughs> year round you have to live for shopping what how does that affect school curriculum well, probably the single most attractive uh Uh, secular philosophy that the upper classes of the world have embraced for 2,000 years is the the stoic philosophy that there's nothing you can buy with money that's worth having and there's nothing you can command with your physical power that's worth commanding. Now that's John Gatter's shorthand but Marcus Aurelius's meditations carry the, uh, the the gravitas of that brilliantly well okay how would that sit with a mass production society if schools were to devote themselves to showing now it wouldn't matter if they showed rich kids but the showing kids of average means not to worry because nothing worth having can be purchased (laughs) and nothing you know, nothing uh, that power can do to you uh, will hurt your, your spirit at all. You can have a great life and not have power or money, how exactly would that drop, that penny drop into the... You see what I mean?
0: Absolutely. And you ask this great question yourself. You ask many of them in the book. What if 68 million trapped school children had independent livelihoods and became producers versus consumers?
1: Oh, my God. We would have another American renaissance, such as we had in the 19th century, where People gasped all over the world. Who are these people who can change their 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 clothing to suit themselves? And the inventiveness, the wealth, the power of the country did not come from the top down. It came from the bottom up. It, it just astonished the world. I mean, has it ever struck you? That the United States is almost literally the only place in the world any place anyone else ever wanted to come to. I mean, bits and pieces here and there, but these huge migrations to the United States weren't to get rich; they were to get free. Uh, it, 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 it. sorry for me hesitating because there's so many thoughts come to mind simultaneously I know when you were in school and everyone listening when you were in school you learned tediously how a bill becomes a law you know it's got to pass muster by both houses of congress by the president and by the supreme court well the way schools teach bills become laws No bill in history ever became a law that way. That's the way it looks on paper. In fact, it's personalizing, redeeming favors. No engineer would ever allow a system like that where or these major voices had to all agree before a project could go forward. So you should and I should rightly be astonished at why this tremendously inefficient system was ever put in place in you know, the division of powers. And yet, when I was a boy... In the 1940s, in a coal mining town in western Pennsylvania, what was required reading in the schools was something called the Federalist Papers that more or less explained the debates that took place before the parts of our Constitution were accepted. And division of powers is for one reason, one reason only— The founders were well aware that no government in human history didn't become corrupt. And they did not tickle their uh, fancies by thinking their own wouldn't become corrupt. They wanted to make it extremely difficult to change any of the guarantees. Uh, of freedom and liberty as the Constitution set down in stone. They wanted to preserve the American argument because they figured the longer people argued out loud in public and the more people who had a voice in the argument, the more that even someone who had to milk the cows, you know, and mow the grass would eventually figure out who is telling the truth. You keep the argument alive. Now, in your lifetime, I have no idea how old you are, but in your lifetime, what you've heard is we've all got to get together on one page. You know, this is a perilous time. Well, all times are perilous. And we have to agree, you know, not talk about these niceties to confuse the public. Well, That's as anti-American as anything anybody ever said. You know, these guys, Jefferson said, we have given you liberty. But I fear unless we have a bloody revolution every 20 years, you will not be able to hold on to it. Because the wheedlers, you know, the corporate voices will say, well, why should we argue this enough to divvy among all of us? And, you know, as far as the unwashed public's concerned, they don't need to know. So.
0: I want to go back to James Bryant Conant. Ah. Because, ah. shockingly enough, as someone who was president of Harvard for 20 years and was a World War I poison gas specialist and World War II executive of the Automatic Bomb Project and author of The Child, The Parent, and The State, oh, I think that there's something that you should share with the public about the whole issue of how we associate people's titles and their degrees we think that their degrees somehow make them of value, or make them good, or somehow make them trustable.
1: Probably the great authority on this was the was the leading advocate of uh, jobs tied to degrees. That was Andrew Carnegie, who himself had exactly two years in a public school and begged his mother at the age of seven to let him go and work in a garment factory, winding thread onto bobbins. But Carnegie, in later life, when he had made all the money in the world, began to write books for his own managerial class, let me call them. Uh, the, The language isn't very complicated, so anyone can read them, But they were deliberately aimed at the managers of the economy and of the society. And Carnegie said, we have to do this. Let me see if I can do this economically. He said, we have to do this, not because it will give us the best architects and surgeons and whatever you want to name, but because... This way, they can be kept under control by the policy-making classes. And this is the only way to impose rationality on society. Now, since the uh, obvious contradiction between his own upbringing and what he's now advocating behind the scenes for the country is so glaring, Carnegie said that it's regretful in a way that we're not, we can't do it the way we did it in the past. He said, but society now is too complicated, the nation is too big, and we have to go for security, stability, rather than. Excellence. How about that?
0: Well, that's another takeoff of the Prussian system of making the populace manageable, right? Well, oh,
1: yes, but Carnegie was, like Rockefeller, they were both addicted to Darwin's call in Descent of Man, that the responsible people in society had to swallow their sentimentality, understand. Uh, he didn't use the word trash, but I'm going to say that most people are trash, and proceed accordingly in order to uh, further the interests of evolution. It wasn't 10 years ago that I was invited to speak at the Mark Hopkins Hotel in San Francisco by a conference calling itself... The annual Bionomics Conference. So, being somewhat interested in a word I had never heard before, (laughs) you know, I did some digging, and you really have to do some digging. I mean, the stuff's there, but it's not all on the surface. Turns out that at the turn of the 20th century, leading American schoolmen, like uh, uh, the guy who was president of Stanford for 30 years, his name will come back to me in a moment, the Harvard people, the Princeton people. These people decided to take charge that a, a project worthy of their advanced Status as human beings would be to take charge of evolution and to guide it, to make sure that the best people bred with the best people and so on. A whole lot of what we recognize as the class structure of the United States, like elite private men's clubs or... or, uh, uh, university clubs uh college clubs for the elite colleges a lot of and country clubs comes about after Darwin writes that book because responsible people say what's well, up to us to separate out the good stuff from the bad stuff and let the bad stuff uh, you know wallow in its badness every major philosopher in western history there aren't any exceptions said that the vast majority of the human race was hopeless where they differed was the cause of the hopelessness and the amount of people who weren't hopeless so calvin john calvin institutes the christian religion and there's a book worth reading if you have about a year off because it's <laughs> written by a lawyer and Calvin was a lawyer it's about 1400 pages in small print but Calvin clearly invents the school system we have now and he says that you've got to set people constantly competing with one another for worthless prizes so that the good people can get on with what really matters well Helen wasn't the first who said that. Plato said that in his two, uh, the Republic and the Laws, other his two Utopias, taught in every worthwhile college on the planet, not just in the United States. People are hopelessly trapped in their intellectual and character class. It, it, you know, and while you have to lie to them that there ways out of that, the reality is that you have to see to it that they don't get in the way of the, the real people. So, so after after Plato, I mean Charlemagne and his uh, his educational mafia, Alcuin from England. Said essentially the same thing, and now Calvin says it in the 15th century, and we move straight through the so-called liberal philosopher Spinoza in uh, let's see, it'd be the late 17th century, and and we can trace it all the way down to right now, to the no-child-left-behind law. The the idea is that you've got to keep these people busy, right? The devil finds work for idle hands, except Plato was going to do this philosophically, and Calvin was going to do it religiously, and, and uh, Darwin... It said it had to be done scientifically, so that right in in the upper regions of the atmosphere, where the policy classes breathe, there there are a whole lot of different narratives circulating than the ones circulate down in uh, PS ten or junior high school forty four. And we need to recognize that maybe this is a a universal part of human nature. Certainly the founders of the Constitution, as they reveal themselves in the Federalist Papers, believed that. But they weren't hopeless about it. They thought you could put safeguards in place as long as you didn't grow lazy and fall back into the old way of thinking
0: james bryant conant i want to go back to him for a minute said education is what the school delivers
1: oh he's furious. you've got you got to read the first ten page he's the steam is coming out of his ears he's not going to waste his time talking about uh, this kind of education of that kind whatever the school delivers that's education <laughs>
0: But this is really profound, because when asked what education is, that kind of an answer... So basically, education as we know it, formalized education has been... schooling. Yes, schooling has been shaped.
1: it's such a useful distinction to separate those two terms. And you ought to do it just out of common sense, because the only other place we use school is with crowds of fish so that all the fins and the tails move at exactly the same speed. You yeah, yeah, schooling, schooling has some value. If you have to learn to take a rifle apart and put it back together blindfolded and you have to do it in, I don't know, 65 seconds or whatever, or they run you back through basic training, it's quite a useful way to learn that mechanical trick. The more of those tricks you learn, the less your brain is able to function as a policy mind functions in context, not in problem solving. That's the latest big lie. It's the highest form of thinking is problem solving. No, it isn't. No, it isn't, because an awful lot of problems create greater problems when they're solved. You need a policy component in your mind that thinks in context. Think only of, I'll give you one example of that, because it's colossal, and it almost ended life on Earth. Sometime in the late 30s and during the Second World War, colleges were set the task by the government of coming up with something that killed all The bugs, you could double, triple, quadruple your uh, harvest yields that way. And sure enough, they did come up with it. It was called DDT, and it killed all the bugs. It also killed all the small organisms right down to the beginning of the food chain. And so if it weren't for a woman who really put her job on the line. I think she worked for the Museum of Natural History in New York. Rachel Carson was her name. Huh. Silent Spring, yes. in which she showed in painstaking detail how the DDT was eliminating the chains of life that Create the plankton and the plankton are what the fish, you know, and then the birds and all the rest of that fish. She goes, There she says, we are exterminating life on earth. And it's funny. It really is funny, Kim, because most of the time someone screams out that way, you, you know, it lasts for a few years and then it vanishes. But in this case, enough people in the policy classes said you know she just may be right there is no more DDT. it's illegal all over the world uh, i i'm sorry i'm just sort of choking on uh, the enormity uh, the mechanism we've created closes us off from clear thinking you would think anyone listening to this show would realize they've never asked anyone for their standardized test score. It has to be because the information's worthless. They've never actually sat down and reasoned that through. They just know it. We all know it. So why are we sending 10% of the time down the toilet in uh, schools are presuming they're worth doing. I'll tell you the great way to heal yourself, I mean anyone listening, all of us, is to take the 10 or 20 leading private boarding schools in the United States, almost all of which came about because of Darwin's book, and see how they manage their students. Now I know you've got skeptics listening who say, yes, if we could afford fifty or sixty thousand a year for the kids in home. The funny thing is is when you extract what those schools do, they don't cost anything. I mean the grounds may cost a lot of money to keep up and the salary scale may be outside the public school salary scale, but the the burden of teaching is largely shifted from the faculty to the students. Exactly what has to happen in an open source system. And we, if people say, ah, it was open source, that's what we had from the colonial beginnings of this country right through the Civil War. Schooling was open source. If it existed, and it did exist all over the country, it was a matter of six to eight weeks a year, two hours a day. They knew that once you primed the pump and got out of the way, that kids are ferociously self-educating organisms. And if, if you give them feedback at key junctures, they go way beyond the generation they grew out of. It's it's almost like a, a a formula for success that has too much evidence to be believed. Especially when people start saying, "Well, do you want your child to be destitute, unemployable?" Da da da. The funny thing is, is the greatest way, if money is what you're after, the greatest way to get a whole lot of it in the United States is through sales. And exactly. virtually every CEO of a large public corporation came up through the sales route, not through any other route. Well, the kind of fluency in uh speaking and writing and the kind of easy behavior with all kinds of people that grease the skids uh, successfully for sales are exactly not what is taught in schooling anyway. The idea is sit down, shut up, right? Oh, now you have seven minutes to speak. Don't get out of your seat.
0: The thing is that this is perpetuated in the way corporations hire, too, in their, quote, human resource departments. Well, it
1: is on the lowest levels, but I can tell you one of my hobbies is figuring out how they hire executives. And I have, you know, about a 50-pound file on that. And I can guarantee you the number one characteristic is not how you did in your last job it's whether you will fit into the executive organization and give up your weekends to go ski shooting you know and
0: right and i'm more mentioned in the other echelons of an organization there's a lot of criteria not only what you did before, what your experience is, what your expertise is, but used to be years ago. I can't say what it is now. I've had my own company for years, but what your educational background is. The thing that's so sad now, John, is that the colleges are so expensive that kids think that they won't have a life if they're not $100,000 in debt after they're done with a college degree.
1: Well, and of course, what well, they'll, they'll tow that anchor right through their 40s. I mean, it is hideous. It's a, it's a, uh, the, the, I just heard on the radio before uh, we spoke that college debt has been securitized. It's turned into t- tradable commodities because the government stands behind a big chunk of those loans.
0: It's another derivatives market then.
1: Yeah. yeah. Oh, exactly. And and we have had, for at least the last 40 years, we have had an invisible network of very good colleges all over the country, indeed all over the world, that will in fact, California is a leader in this, will give you their degree. It will not be marked uh, through computer or used to be by correspondence. It'll be the same degree. The cost is about a third of the cost of sitting down, and you're able to finish the entire degree in about 18 months in California in less time than that elsewhere. We're talking about some of the greatest schools in the world, like McGill uh, in in Canada. Uh, you can get PhDs masters, You can get special training to it that enables you to apply for certain kinds of work. Or you can get a, a, a bachelor's degree from excellent universities at your own speed. My daughter graduated from MIT. And in order, she wanted to teach for one year in New York City. And they wanted her to have... Oh, I think 26 education credits. And she said, well, I refuse to do that and, and to spend that money in that time. And I said, you don't have to. I said, you can take all 26 credits in one semester at Penn State or a hundred other colleges for about a fifth. Of the cost that a New York City college would charge you, and when she was done uh, when she had done that, she said to me, "You know, I learned more from those courses which shift the burden of learning heavily onto the student than I learned." In four years at MIT. Now, that was great to know since I was looking at, I don't know, a quarter of a million dollars in debt.
0: (laughs) I loved your letter to your granddaughter. Oh, yes. And was profoundly impacted by that.
1: She ended up going to Hampshire College up in Amherst, Massachusetts. They're part of a loose consortium with Amherst, Smith, Holyoke, those fine women's schools. You can take courses in any one of the five colleges, but you write your own curriculum, and then you convince faculty members to give it to you. That's if you do it at Hampshire, uh, at Amherst, and the other schools are fixed courses you take.
0: How interesting. How very, very interesting Apparently, Robert Kiyosaki loves you. He says, John Taylor Gatto has been a hero of mine for years. He has the courage to challenge an educational system that is obsolete and out of touch with reality. Years ago, he gave me the courage to speak out and write my books. I trust this book will give you the courage to speak out. And, and so, so many God others. God bless
1: him, you know. One of his close relatives was the head of the Hawaii
0: school system.
1: In his book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. That was the poor dad.
0: Very interesting. I want to talk a little bit about Marilee Jones. Uh, I love her. I want you to share her plight. What happened to her, what she did, and the relevance. Well,
1: I picked this. up, this about two years ago, uh, I picked up. I read the financial press, not because I'm an investor, but because you're likelier to get some corner on the truth there than anywhere else. So I'm reading the Wall Street Journal, and there's this big article that the admission head at MIT had been fired, and they devoted a whole page and a half to it. They interviewed uh, MIT students, faculty. They said that she was a, a treasure, impossible to replace. Nevertheless, she was fired. The New York Times covered it on the front page, and all over the country, Merrily for about, I don't know, three days, was huge news. She had changed MIT's admissions policy to favor women. That's probably why my daughter got in. uh, And and she created a 50-50 balance, male-female, you know, close to that, at MIT. Somehow, after 28 years, somebody snooping around discovered she did not have the college degrees she claimed when she applied for the job she didn't have any of them and 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 the cherry on top of this Sunday Kim <laughs> I hope you appreciate it I, I, I do that's why I'm bringing
0: is, it up she wasn't a
1: schemer what she had been was a country western singer in upstate new york bars and clubs now why someone would want to leave a lovely job like that to be admission admissions director at MIT, I have no idea. But the fact is that she was famous all over the country, beloved at MIT, but the president, nervous I guess, because there are 20 presidents waiting in the wings for everyone who has a job, he said, We will see to it in the future. This will never happen again. And I remember thinking, What well, will never happen again? That you'll get this priceless admissions lady who reformed your system. And, ah, uh, well, that's Marilyn Jones. If anyone knows her, please send me her address because I want to send her, I don't know, a box of chocolates or something.
0: Well, I think it's a critical topic to talk about her because the criteria for getting that type of a job or a position must have been so narrowly defined that she didn't want to say what her background fully was as a singer and that <laughs> that being a singer wouldn't be able to cross-pollinate her gifts into that kind of a position. And that's the narrowedness of the paradigm for hiring in general.
1: Yes, and i and, and remember what... Carnegie said, we will sacrifice getting the best people in these positions. It's unfortunate, he said, but in order to get stability, that's the trade-off.
0: Can we talk a little bit about William Wundt?
1: Uh, Well, Wundt is uh, how it's pronounced, spelled Wundt. Wilhelm Wundt uh, taught... At the University of Leipzig, I believe, in one of the Germanys, uh, near Saxony, near Prussia, Wundt was the world's first behavioral psychologist and probably the most influential. Uh, what, what your listeners need to know before I launch into Wundt is For a long time, the only place you could get the Ph.D. degree was in uh, Prussia or Hanover or Saxony in the northern Germanys. The degree had existed philosophically as a concept for a long time, but it wasn't until Germany decided to use schooling to get its population to knuckle under, that the degree actually existed, beginning, I think, in in the very early 19th century. Well, a steady stream of Americans, and of course, uh, people from prominent families all over the planet, but, but from America, went to Prussia, took the PhD degree, and by 1880, Every single government bureau was under the direction of somebody with a Prussian Ph.D. Uh, Every single college, with one exception, I think it was Cornell in upstate New York, was under the direction of somebody who possessed a Prussian Ph.D. One exception was made for people of ordinary means like John Dewey, the schoolman. If you studied directly under somebody who had a Prussian PhD and Dewey studied under G Stanley Hall at Johns Hopkins, then you were allowed to enter the sweepstakes. For for big jobs, but there were relatively few of those at the beginning. So the whole country was Prussianized. They didn't need tweets or the internet, they they didn't even need the pulpit. It happened because the directors of these universities and university growth in the 19th century was explosive in the United States. So you would, I'll use the word in fact, knowing full well that I shouldn't, Uh, you could in fact, everybody who was ambitious in the upper echelons of the student body with the Prussian way of looking at things, north, south, east, west, didn't, Matter. Stanford was the Prussian department on the West Coast, and it stretched its tentacles into virtually every other school, though California still has a handful of schools that hold to the earlier liberal arts tradition, which would be closest to the open source that I talk about.
0: Didn't Wilhelm Wundt also have an issue with adolescence? He uh, said it's a dangerous, irrational state of human it was growth. G.
1: Stanley Hall. Was it G. Stanley Hall? Wundt's first assistant at Leipzig was an American with a beard down to his belly button named G. Stanley Hall, who took over the psych department at Johns Hopkins University, which was one of the two Prussian universities in the country underwritten by wealthy people. University of Chicago was the other one underwritten by uh, the Rockefeller family. Eventually many more did. So, Wundt considered the early teen years, the ones we call adolescence, maybe the early and middle teen years, as a state of maximum psychic instability, Uh, uh, madness, you might accurately uh, say, well, Hall saw a chance to become rich and famous in the United States. The word adolescence... Didn't exist well, the word existed, but nobody treated it seriously. It had bounced around through history without having any credibility at all but g. Stanley Hall in nineteen two three or four, or maybe all three of those years, wrote a huge two volume uh set called Adolescence, in which he minutely defined the disabilities of the adolescent and what could be done uh, about that. All the universities picked up on it like a, a pack of hounds in, in full cry after you know, a rabbit because of the jobs it created, the titles it created, the money it brought in. So adolescents sprang into... Virtual existence somewhat earlier, but into real existence in the first two decades of the 20th century under Wilhelm von's first assistant at the University of Leipzig, G. Stanley Hall. And of course, it became too profitable ever to give up, even today, even though, and your listeners need to know this, even though. George Washington, who never was considered super bright, he was okay, was studying trigonometry at age 11. Thomas Jefferson was running a plantation with 2,500 employees all by himself, his parents deceased, at age 12. Excuse me, 13, I think, for Jefferson. Uh, Uh... Our first admiral in American history was in charge of a warship at the age of 12. He wasn't an admiral. He had been assigned to a captured British ship in the War of 1812 in order to sail it from Peru to Boston. Well, I think one of the reasons that early American history is glossed over universally in schools when it used to be minutely examined is in this new world, we had plenty of opportunity for adolescents to become powerful, wealthy, useful. They were an essential part of... Of building that new society. And of course, they're the most inventive people in the world. But with adolescence, they were withdrawn from the general community and have been ever since, you know, to a great, great financial loss to the rest of us. Because we keep them, we artificially extend their childhood. Uh, I mean, adolescence isn't over anymore at 21. Nobody's silly enough to believe that. There's
0: a lot of people in Congress that run the country that are still in their adolescence under I that context. You would think under under that if, context.
1: If their public display is <laughs> right.
0: I want to talk about the comment in Weapons of Mass Instruction, about the fact that aside from basic arithmetic, that statistics end up being more important than a lot of the subjects that are taken in Well, that in the math. doesn't
1: come from John Gannon. No, no, no. That N- no, comes no, from Alfred North Whitehead, who was a, not only a major philosopher, but a major mathematician. His, his book, along with Bertrand Russell, Principia Mathematica, I think it's published around the First World War, was one of these gigantic uh, influential documents in all human history. So in his very small volume that I'd really recommend to anybody listening, uh, The Aims of Education, it's been continuously in print for nearly 100 years, he says that the size edition subtraction, multiplication, that that the only math worth knowing unless you have a specific job that requires it is statistics because it enables you roughly to predict the future as long as you're careful, wary about uh, its drawbacks. Now, I just read in the last week The Criteria for Executive Hiring uh, in the United States, Uh, it was an essay, I believe in Fortune, but it could have been somewhere else, so don't hold me to it, that... Mathematics isn't among the top ten characteristics investigated, and the reason for it is—well, I didn't say this, but I know it is—if you have to use in surveying quadratic equations— You learn them in a couple of hours, and you never forget them because you're using them. Starson High School, which is one in one, two, three, in science high schools in the United States, did a study about 20 years ago of the people who graduated with honors in calculus. And what they discovered to their horror was The 24 hours after they take the final examination, they barely could pass the same test they got, you know, 99 on before.
0: 48
1: hours after, they're lucky to get a 25. And 72 hours after, you know, (laughs) wow, what are these funny, (laughs) marks? I mean, it it was quite an eye-opener.
0: So many parents are going to know what you're talking about on an intuitive level. They know, but they're scared to not go with the flow. And when I think about the children that are going to school and the kids that feel they have to bring weapons to protect themselves. Yes. When I think about the fact that so many kids can't concentrate after lunch and aren't as productive after lunch as they were before. When I think about the fact that children are more likely to be incarcerated, it's very, very disturbing and it's got to be systemic.
1: It has to be stopped. The time for excessive politeness is over. These classrooms or psychological hothouses. And learning, even among the kids who have an active appetite for learning, has to be down the list. Self-protection, uh, may maybe may attracting uh, favorable attention from popular kids, uh, m- maybe getting a smile from the teacher. There's so many valences at work that militate against falling in love with learning. And yet, you probably know, and as I've gotten older, I I know to an extreme degree, if you fall in love with learning, you have the key to a wonderful life, a happy life, an interesting life. Even when you're 75 as I am, you know, I can't wait to wake up to start thinking about ideas again. I'm
0: in love with and, learning, and too. Reading
1: some, <laughs> you know, great mind that allows me it, it past the defenses on the surface. But kids can't get there easily. Sometimes if their parents are there, you know, they can take a deep breath and and get but but I watched so many kids mutilated in front of my eyes, not just ghetto kids, mutilated because of this psychological hothouse that I became outraged in the best Machiavellian sense. I said, I'm gonna break this thing in a small way and 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 take take the boot off the neck of these kids and let them find out who they are. You do that through experience, then through reflection, never through testing, by the way. I'd say to all the young people listening, the only person worth competing against in your life is yourself. And if you do that, You'll always have a worthy opponent. You look at your historical sense, who you were yesterday, and you say, I'm going to exceed that. Well, that challenge never goes away, not even at 75.
0: I'm totally in love with learning. That's one of the reasons that I do what I do. This is one part of what I do. But I think that part of the role or the challenge that parents have is to create a life, to create an environment where their kids can fall in love with learning.
1: The thing that precedes that is your model your kids are watching you every second even when you think they're doing something else their their greatest teacher is what you do not what you say and i don't mean you have to end up as a ceo or with the you know billion dollars in the bank you just have to be rolling up your sleeves and plunging into i agree life, with you. into new Absolutely, challenges yeah. if you do that Your kids are very, very likely will do that, too.
0: I totally agree with you. It is about the modeling of it and creating a space for it. But it seems to be interfered with when that is healthy and happening. It seems to be interfered with when they go to formal schooling. It's disrupted, totally disrupted.
1: Right, right. The Chinese keep secretly inviting me to speak to executives over in China because while they have perfect schools by the Prussian model <laughs> they really are they have this desperate need to steal patents and copyright from the West because as you do that the imagination dries up so they keep asking well why are kids unable to, you know, generate these ideas? And I said, you know, I hate to tell you this, and they keep asking me back, and say the same thing, but what you're doing is trading off stability and dependability for this creative part, the imagination. And you can't have both. You just can't.
0: Yeah. The imagination and the creative spirit to go along with it, right?
1: Right. Now, the funny thing is, is that truly imaginative creative people quickly develop the kind of discipline we all like to see anyway, because it's just more efficient to have it. I mean, I know some people go to drugs and alcohol or whatever, But if if you examine the most successful artists in any field, they're the hardest-working people of all. They never settle for what they accomplish. They always compete with themselves. They love learning, and it's a birthright built into our germplasm that I think every kid, without knowing it, has a right to demand.
0: I want to talk about several things. The Bartley Bee Project.
1: Uh, I just got on... uh, What's her name? Uh, That dramatic lady with a Hungarian accent. This lady has a a blog that's apparently very threatening to news sources because she gets the stuff from the inside and she gets it early. She ran a big article in the last week on the... Bartleby project, so I'm expecting uh, I'm expecting with a little bit of push here and there th- that it will take off one of these moments. It doesn't have to take off right away. The things that quickly peak, quickly die too. I'm looking for Are you a long-term Are you- commitment by kids to simply write on the face of the standardized test, I would prefer not to take this test. Not I refuse to take this test, because then you're just some brat, you know, you're not news. But I would prefer not to do that is from Herman Melville's famous short story that's driven millions of people insane over the years, me included, called... Bartleby the Scrivener, this low-down ratty clerk in Wall Street one day, is asked to go to the post office by his boss, and he says, I would prefer not to do that. He doesn't say why. He doesn't shake his fist. He just says that. So the boss thinks, you know, well, not worth making a scene about. And a little later on, the boss says, uh, in the days without photocopy machines, a Scrivener made the copies in the law office. He says, I want you to make a copy of this, Bartleby, and Bartleby says, I would prefer not to do that. Huh. Well, eventually, of course, he gets fired, and the boss says, uh, I don't come to work tomorrow, and I expect you to leave the office and not come back and barbie says i would prefer not to do that because he sleeps in the office to save money he doesn't get paid very much and eventually he's put into debtors prison stories from eighteen fifty plus or minus a few years And the boss gets a guilty conscience because he's never made any trouble at all. He's been a good worker. All he's done is exercise his right to say no. And the boss goes over and bribes the jailers to bring him decent food instead of a crust of bread. But Barnaby says, I would prefer not to eat that. And he starves himself to death. Well, that story drove me crazy. From high school through college, I had it in both places, and it junctures through my life until I was about 60, and all of a sudden I saw what Melville was trying to say. If you don't reserve the right to prefer not to do things that other people want you to do, then you're not really a human being at all. You're some kind of servant or slave. And So I think preserving Melville's language is quite important because it broadcasts a kind of educated sensibility to the authorities who can't allow you not to take this test, right? If 5% of the kids preferred not to take the test, we wouldn't have the test. It would be headlines all over the country. I got this idea from some of the wealthiest women probably in the world, but certainly in the United States, about, oh, I don't know, six, seven, eight years ago, it was a huge... National headline story that lasted exactly, I don't know, 72 hours and then it vanished. Now, I know <laughs> enough about the newspaper business to know that they love to drag a story out forever. It was the mothers in Scarsdale High School, this wealthy community north of New York City, who had forbidden their children to take standardized tests. Well, it was a headline on day one. There was a little bit of backstory on day two and then it vanished. So I scratched my head, and I said, What could have happened to take that story out of the news entirely? And then it dawned on me. They had to have been approached by big shots in the school racket said, Okay, okay, if you keep your mouth shut, your kids don't have to take these tests. You know, But what we can't tolerate is the spreading. Because if the scars don't get away with it, then Harlow will try to get away with it. That had to be it. So anyway, but I got the idea. Well, why shouldn't you be able to say no? Especially once you know what, what I know. The tests don't correlate with anything. With anything at all. Uh, about three years ago, I'm pretty sure it was Syracuse University. They did a study of 50 colleges. They ranked the freshman classes coming in on five academic areas, and they wanted to see how much the kids learned in four years of college. So then they ranked them again when they were exiting. Uh, four years later, and what they discovered was that in 14 of the universities, which included Yale, Georgetown, and Johns Hopkins, the graduating seniors knew less than they had known as entering freshmen. And in the other, th- oh, it's University of Connecticut at stores. you yeah, know, it wasn't Syracuse. Uh, 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 And they did 50,000 kids. So this is a very expensive study. In the other 36 schools, they ended up exactly in the same position they had as entering freshmen. The only difference was they were about a quarter of a million dollars lighter in pocket.
0: Do you know what they used to assess this?
1: I have it on my to-do list to drive up there and get every painful particular for my next book, but I haven't yet because, like like I'll bet you are, I am surrounded by mountains, mountains of paper, boxes of paper, rooms full of paper, all of which require attention.
0: (laughs) So I want to get back to this project. Are you saying a particular age? Are you saying anything? Uh, It
1: could be anywhere as long as they're being schooled and as long as, you know, this big chunk of their school year is taken out to take the test. And they don't wear, uh, carry picket signs or slogans or throw mud. They quietly write on the test, I would prefer not to take this test. And, of course, they'll be asked a day later, why not? And at that point, you have to exercise self-respect and say I would prefer not to disclose my reasons and then of course the mother will be called in and you know the father because they can't afford this idea to spread but in fact if a handful of kids do it it will spread.
0: Let's go to the mother being called in. Can we take it to a real-life sure. scenario? The mother's called sure, in. I have
1: to respect my son's free will choice that nothing is to be gained by this test. You've seen his work on a daily basis for, you know, X number of months. And my own reading into the use of these tests it does not... Raise my optimism that they're either useful for my son or for the school. They're ranking every kid in the United States, theoretically, from one through 70 million. They create winners and losers, but there's no evidence that the winners know how to do anything at all. I, I sort of induced that In 30 years of classroom teaching, I kept saying after, say, the 10th year when I really had sharpened my intuition that the kids who scored best on the reading test weren't the best readers, and the kids who scored best on the math-science part weren't the people with naturally scientific minds. They had good memories, and they had a lot of ambition. To be named a winner, but they, in other, they, they they were rather average kids. Otherwise,
0: so the mother comes in, she explains where she's at. Now, I'm home sure
1: she- is the important part, right? You know, we have to reserve the right to affirm some things and deny others. Uh, and in this case, coercion doesn't seem to serve any purpose at all.
0: I totally get what you're saying, but doesn't that then set up our children on some level to be targeted by that institution?
1: Well, you would think so. Over the years, what I've seen is uh, that if you come from the upper middle and above classes, you can, in fact, vanish from school for a month because you're you're sailing to the Eastern Mediterranean in December, and when you come back, almost nothing is is said. I did notice how often that happened, and I began when I began my field curriculum part of my teaching, it was on the basis that sauce for the goose must be sauce for the gander, of course, it wasn't as soon as you enter the realms of powerlessness. You you have no latitude whatsoever. The difficulty for the school was, I, I knew how to use... I had no levers of power myself, but I knew how to use levers of power outside the school. I know, I know for example, that 10 irate mothers can close any school in the United States. And the schools know that, too. If they happen to be... Black, irate mothers, five mothers can close the school down. Uh, So I would enlist the parents first. Then I would enlist the local political club, which wasn't hard to do. Then if you have a local university, and I had Columbia and Fordham, uh, uh, almost anyone trumps a school authority. If you have a large business in your area, uh, you can work out some project with the uh, public relations department, and once the school knows that, I don't know, General Electric has signed off on this, would they really be so bold as to say, I'm sorry, you can't do this because... uh, you know, because we're reading Dick and Jane or Jack London. Uh, So I would, over the course of a few years, I would develop so many ligatures of power always through quid pro quo. never, Never ask for a favor. Never. I'd tell kids that. Always have something to trade. And what you have to trade with Other institutions or with a political club is a whole lot of good publicity for them. In some cases, publicity leading to uh, federal requirements for, uh, you know, funds, subsidies, contracts. Uh, That was the easiest sell in the world.
0: Very interesting. I was
1: doing this for 120 kids all by myself. And I'm not saying that to pat myself on the back. If if there were any difficulty doing this, I certainly would have run into it. Uh, you, you know, the, the prodigies of work wouldn't have allowed any more work to be added on top of it. So.
0: Interesting. This roots out standardization at its core, correct?
1: Yeah. What people ought to ask... Someone like me who was in the classroom for 30 years and taught some of the richest kids in the country and a lot of the poorest kids in the country and a whole lot of, quote, professional groups in between. Because I'm on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. I'm a block from the Museum of Natural History and five blocks from the Opera. You know, it's just a wealthy part of the world, but it buses in a lot of poor kids in order to add money to the schools. And what I discovered, I didn't start from a traditional liberal background. I'm one of the handful of founders of the New York State Conservative Party. I don't belong anymore because it was hard to find anybody in the Conservative Party who wasn't a wild-eyed radical. They weren't conservative at all. There were people like George Bush you know, who reserved the right to attack countries that hadn't attacked us, reserved the right to triple the size of government, to spend money he didn't have. I mean, that's a conservative. So anyway, what I discovered by the presentation of the kids year in, year out, was there's almost no difference between the Harlem kid and the surgeon's son. There's almost no difference in intellectual power. The difference is in the idiom they use and their understanding of how society works and the targets they're chasing. Well, I made those things that I just said to you the substance of the curriculum. And it was like... It was like rain falling on a, you know, parched garden. I could tell that almost immediately the kids understood, all the kids understood that there was something useful to them going on. You know, anybody could do this. It doesn't cost anything. We think it costs a lot because it only occurs in expensive boarding schools. So we assume that it's the expense that's causing the uh, you know the intellectual growth or the imaginative growth, and it's not. It's the methodology which anyone can use.
0: Very exciting.
1: It really is exciting. And look, what about the national wealth it unleashes? That was our secret back in 1820. That everybody had a chance. To have a say, to have a seat at the table, you, you, you know, it didn't matter if they lived in a, a, a shack, with them. if they had a good idea, they worked hard. No other country did that. They were all rigidly class-based. That's how we got so rich and so powerful. And we've been coasting on that that wealth ever since. And it's diminished and diminished and diminished, and now basically all we have left is is the biggest army, navy, and air force in the world.
0: Talk a little bit about Carol Quigley and, uh, and his book, Tragedy I and Help. I guarantee
1: anyone listening, if you get Mister Quigley's book and read it cover to cover, set it aside, and ninety days later, this is essential read it again with a notebook in your hand, you will have the finest education you could imagine. Mr. Quigley, was Dr. Quigley, was the head of the Foreign Service Department at Georgetown University. You, with an international reputation, one that draws people from the strongest families in the country, and one which drew young Bill Clinton, who had Mister Quig- Dr. Quigley as his personal tutor at Georgetown. Quigley's the only man who's ever been allowed to examine the private files of the Council on Foreign Relations. And he wrote a book in 1968 published by Macmillan called Tragedy and Hope, A History of the World in Our Time. I believe it's like 1,300 pages long. Uh, it's brilliantly written, so you never feel the way you do sometimes in the face of a ponderous book. Oh, my God, is there more to read. He's a brilliant writer. Mr. Quigley simply starts off by saying that nothing you have ever learned about the 20th century Is actually the way it happened. And he explains that bit by bit throughout the 20th century, a group of usually men, but a group of prominent individuals in England and Australia and the United States and Germany and France decided that the world had no future unless it was going to be brought into a a unitary government under the command of the English-speaking nations. (laughs) There's a little bit of brass in there. Quigley says that the wars have been arranged. Now, don't anybody say this is a conspiracy theory, because Quigley somewhere else in the book says, I approve of this. I don't approve of the secrecy. Behind it. So, Cleveland says the wars have been arranged so that the aggressor nation will have a little bit of free run to break down the cultures and the governments of the nations around it, and then the English speaking nations will step in and put it out of business, but they'll be one step closer to a global government because what the barriers are that prevents that from happening are cultures, religions, strong family ties, you know, love of this place rather than every place. And all those things had to be broken down before you could realistically put it under centralized political control. And Quigley then lays down a track. Uh, Oh, my goodness, Kim. Uh, You know, I'm even speechless now. I mean, I've read the book six times. I'm speechless now at the brilliance.
0: I'm about to buy it. (laughs)
1: He has the names, the addresses, exactly the moments when these things were done. Britain in the Second World War had not only a larger air force than Germany's, but it had a more modern air force than Germany's. Uh, The Germans were outnumbered in every major battle of the Second World War, four to one. They had no natural resources except what they could steal, which is not a good way to conduct a, a military campaign. The uh, The idea was to give them the maximum freedom to destroy other cultures, religions, people before... Uh, that that was brought to a close, and you would say, well, we've moved one step closer to this moment when people finally say, oh, for God's sake, give us a, a one-world government. So there are little riffs and essays that all by themselves are surpassingly brilliant. For example, his riff on weaponry is simply this, that nowhere in the history of the world has there ever been freedom except where the ordinary people are armed. And he said, where they're armed, equivalent to the government, he said, you have the greatest freedom. He said, but where they're disarmed, you have none except possibly the appearance of freedom of course Hitler's very first act in office was to make owning weapons illegal <laughs> anyway anyway tra- tragedy and hope gives you uh, a whole different context with which to evaluate things intelligence and principle are two enemies of management First of all, confronting intelligence and self-reliance, management is faced with this awful situation that whatever they set out to do possibly could be done better by someone else, but they can't do anything unless they assemble capital. And the people who have capital to loan they want to guarantee they're close to it they're going to get their money back and so that's called the overproduction cause of schooling and then the other major, so you're going to kill overproduction by removing the productive capacity from most of the people through schooling the other uh, main reason is called hyper-democracy Democracy actually is treated uh, as a real uh, quantity. Then the future is unpredictable, and yet you can't have a social order that's.
0: Brilliant. In your lifetime so far, with everything you've been through, all your teaching, all your publications, this project that you've set forth, and also the fourth purpose, the documentary series that you are gearing up to deliver, if you could blink your eyes and 60 million kids were free from standardized testing, don't you think that teachers are not going to know what to do with them? <laughs>
1: Well, (laughs) that's that's a great supposition. As things stand now, yes. How about imposing a requirement, which I imposed on myself 30 years ago, of never doing anything at all in the classroom without explaining why we're doing this or allowing the kids at any juncture to say, why are we doing this? And I would say to the kids, if I can't explain to your satisfaction why we're doing something, as long as your mother agrees, you are free to do anything else that that we all agree has some chance to be useful to you. I mean, you can't sit in the stairwell and smoke, but you can do other things. It worked really like a charm, and it's a great discipline for school teachers listening. You can upgrade the quality of what you do simply by not doing anything without asking yourself, why are we doing this? Now, Many times the answer may well be, I don't have a choice. I have to do this, or I'll get in trouble or be fired. In which case, tell the kids that. Kids have this infallible crop detector. You know, they know if you level with them all the time, you're going to have a much, much easier time because you're treating them with respect. Now, the only thing that trumps the school uh demands I do this, and I learned this through grueling practice, is if a mother can screw up her courage and boldly say, I would prefer my son not do that, we'll have to find a substitute, I don't believe there's a school in the country that would waste the effort trying to squelch that person. I've just seen it happen over and over again. It took years, Kim. I would see it happen on a regular basis with upper middle class parents in the school administration. And suddenly it dawned on me to collect those experiences and say, well, why isn't that right if this is the United States? We hope it would try to be, why wouldn't that be anybody's right to do so? I mean, maybe we can't all take our kids to the Mediterranean in December, but we sure as the devil can find substitutes for that that are worthier than copying notes off a board and taking a standardized test. They're all over. And once we got a dialogue going about this, I mean, it's amazing. I'm not the, uh, the the wisest person in the world. With a group of heads thinking in the same direction, we would end up with with a menu of choices much greater than anybody could feast on in one lifetime.
0: You haven't lost any of your passion, have you?
1: Well, <laughs> I'm a little warier, but. But as time grows short, you know I'm, I'm. I grew up during the Second World War, and you got a, a, a crack over the head if you didn't eat everything on your plate, because the little children in Europe were starving. Now whether that was so or not, I don't know, but it became an ingrained habit in me to despise waste. And when I see the waste of these lives, I say, Are we nuts? are we out of our minds read Ben Franklin's autobiography and you will see what a society's like where kids of all ages are mixed in with the business of the world it's dazzling and it dazzled the rest of the planet and I think we could bit by bit get there again certainly the homeschoolers are, are starting they've taken more than the first step in that direction
0: It's so exciting to listen to you and to talk with you. John Taylor Gatto, thank you so much for being our guest. Thank you, Kim. Ladies and gentlemen, we have been talking with, learning from, and listening to John Taylor Gatto. He is the author of Dumbing Us Down, The Curriculum of Compulsory Schooling, The Underground History of the American Education, and Weapons of Mass Instruction a school teacher's journey through the dark world of compulsory schooling. He is also producing and involved in a documentary series called The Fourth Purpose. It is my great honor to have you on. God bless you. Thank you so much. God,
1: God bless you, Kim, and take care of California. <laughs> Bye now.